There's a pandemic of fear and anxiety, religious persecution, political corruption, <clears throat> increase in natural disasters, rampant sexual immorality, a culture of injustice, turning away from God and openness to false religions, national dependence on idols before God. This describes a na nation that's in spiritual decay. And what I just described is the nation of Israel in 867 B.C. during Elijah's day. But it sounds all too familiar to us today, doesn't it? <clears throat> How do we respond in a culture of spiritual decay? Well, I'd like us this morning to look at the major players in 1 Kings chapter 18. Four different people or groups of people. And I'd like us to ask, who do we most identify with and what is our response in a culture of decay? Spiritual decay. And the first character is a guy named Obadiah. Obadiah. He, he was faithful. 1 Kings 18, verse 1. <clears throat> After a long time in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, go and present yourself to Ahab, who was the king, and I will send rain on the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab had summoned Obadiah, his palace administrator. Obadiah was a devout believer in the Lord. While Jezebel was killing off the Lord's prophets, Obadiah had taken a hundred prophets and hidden them in two caves, fifty in each, and had supplied them with food and water. And then verse 7. As Obadiah was walking along, Elijah, the prophet, met him. Obadiah recognized him, bowed down to the ground, and said, Is it really you, my lord, Elijah? Yes, he replied. Go tell your master, King Ahab, Elijah is here. What have, what have I done wrong, asked Obadiah, that you're handing your servant over to Ahab to be put to death? As surely as the Lord your God lives, there's not a nation or a kingdom where my master has not sent someone to look for you. And whenever a nation or kingdom claims you were not there, he made them swear that he could not, they could not find you. But now you tell me to go tell my master and say, Elijah's here. I don't know where the spirit of the Lord may carry you when I leave you. And if I go and tell Ahab and he doesn't find you, then he's going to kill me. Yet I, your servant, have worshipped the Lord since my youth. Haven't you heard, my Lord, what I did while Jezebel was killing the prophets of the Lord? I hid a hundred of the Lord's prophets in two caves, fifty in each, and supplied them with food and water. And now you tell me to go to my master and say, Elijah is here. He will kill me. Elijah said, as the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve, I will surely present myself to Ahab today. So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. So picture God telling Elijah, okay, um, this drought is coming to an end after so many months, years even. Now I want you to go meet Ahab, but instead God leads Elijah straight to Ahab's palace administrator, Obadiah. 
Why did he do that? God must have had a purpose for Obadiah for involving him. And what was his purpose for Obadiah? Well, to strengthen his faith by giving him an opportunity to partner with God. Why would God choose Obadiah? Well, Obadiah had proven in the past that he was faithful. He had hidden God's prophets. He had cared for them. And so he was trustworthy. And God looked at, hey, there's this guy I can trust. I could build his faith. And so he asked him to do something that would cause even greater faith or need even greater faith. God is capable of carrying out his will. He doesn't need the partnership of Obadiah or any one of us. He's capable of taking and running the universe all by himself. But he chooses to partner with us in order to strengthen our faith. It brings him joy, but also because he's preparing us for the ultimate goal to co-reign with him for all eternity. That's crazy. We're going to rule with him in the new heaven and new earth. We're told in 2 Timothy, if we endure on earth, we will also reign with him in the future. Revelation 5, you have, been ma- you have made them to be kingdom and priests to our God, speaking of us. And they will reign upon the earth, speaking of us. We're going to reign in the new heaven and new earth. The extent of our rule in the coming age will be a reward in proportion to how faithful we've been while we walked on this earth. In the parable of the talents, Jesus taught that when a master replied after handing out um, um, responsibilities to his servants, he will call back the one servant, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will now put you in charge of many things. Come and share in your master's happiness. And that's what it will be for us, the day of rewards one day, if we've been good and faithful. Oh, but I was faithful. When I lived on a Christian college campus for four years, it was easy at first to regress into spiritual apathy. College life, in my mind, was a time to celebrate good times with new friends from all over the country and world even. And we'll eat meats together and food prepared for us every day, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Prepared for us, we just sit there, take as many desserts as we want, and sit there for two hours laughing with your friends, gaining 30 pounds. Or at night, hanging out at the student center, drinking coffee and eating ice cream. Or on the weekends, enjoying any number of activities going on, be it concert or play or just party down in someone's dorm or whatever. It was a self-serving existence, and it was fun. But then one day during my sophomore year when I was eating in the cafeteria, there were these announcements on cardboard like this on either side, and and, um, I read an invitation to join Youth for Christ ministry to reach out to high school students on their various area campuses. And underneath the invitation was Matthew 12.30, Jesus said, he who is not with me is against me. He who does not gather with me scatters. And it cut me like a knife, you know, the Holy Spirit's conviction. 
because I realized at that time that I wasn't gathering with Jesus at all. And therefore, by default, I was scattering. So I went to this call-out meeting for Youth for Christ, and I signed up. I joined a ministry team to reach out to a local high school, was given a small group of high school guys, and uh, the Lord restored my joy, my calling, my purpose. In fact, it was in part there that I received my call to pastoral ministry, and the rest is history. I could have spent the remainder of my college years just pursuing my own self-interest, but God knew that he knew what it would take to give me joy and, and fulfillment and purpose. And so he provided opportunities for me to serve him, just like he provided Obadiah that day. He didn't need to. He could have been very capable of doing it on his own or using someone else, but he chose me. Obadiah was faithful. The next three examples I'm about to give are not positive examples. But this is God's word, and so I'm going to share. The next is King Ahab, who wasn't faithful. In fact, he was a compromiser. In verse 4, When Jezebel was killing off the Lord's prophets, Obadiah had taken a hundred prophets and hidden them in two caves, fifty in each, supplied them with food and water. Ahab had said to Obadiah, unknowingly about unknowing of these prophets. He said, hey, let's go through the land to all the springs and valleys and maybe we can find some grass to keep the horses and mules alive so that we won't have to kill any of our animals. So they divided the land. They were to cover King Ahab going in one direction and his servant Obadiah in the other looking for grass. Ahab was the seventh king of Israel. God had raised him up to lead God's chosen people, but Ahab compromised. He compromised initially by marrying a foreign woman from a pagan country, a Sidonian woman named Jezebel. Ahab showed no concern when his wife eventually began killing off the prophets of God, prophets of Israel. He had no concern. The only concern he had was to save the animals. Why? So that his kingdom would prosper and his kingdom, his kingly reign would be affluent and powerful and secure. King Ahab was looking to his own interests. He cared for the animals, but not the people of God. Our hearts are moved when we turn on late night TV. Our hearts move by compassion when we see those big sad puppy dog eyes of a neglected puppy needing to be sponsored, chained to this, or chained in a cage or whatever. And yet we hear about uh, the abortion industry and the loss of human life in the womb, and it's like, oh well, commonplace. Not much has changed today than what King Ahab prioritized. In certain religions around the world, people, children, are being star- are, they're starving to death. Meanwhile, there are cows roaming all around their country and in their streets because after all, according to their religion, that cow might be my reincarnated uncle. And they're sacred. While people are starving, cows are thriving. Isaiah tells us that woe to those who call evil good and good evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. 
Those are the days we're living in. Verse 16, so Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, is that you, you trouble, you, you uh, troubler of Israel? You know, you're responsible for this drought, for this hunger, for the death of the animals. Verse 18, I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. How do they make trouble? Well, they, being the king of God, over God's people, had abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. At the beginning of King Ahab's reign, he encouraged people to serve Yahweh, the God of Israel. He welcomed it. Hey, after all, we're Israel. We worship God. We worship a temple. But then, because of Jezebel, his wife's influence, he began to welcome the worship of Baal as well and celebrate that. It was a classic example of syncretism. You know, yeah, God, the Christian God's good, but there's so many other ways to worship him and pathways to God. You know, Jesus is good, but Jesus and, you know, it's all good. They all lead up the same mountain. It didn't take long, though, under Jezebel's influence for the leadership of Ahab to be unleashed an all-out attack on God's people. As they agreed to um, silence the prophets of God by killing them. Well, most of us will never be called into leadership like that, where we'll be leading a country and be, you know, over a massive group of people, but we are all called to be leaders in our families. If we're parents or grandparents or big sisters or aunts or uncles, we're all called to be leaders. A leader is simply one who influences and we influence our children and grandchildren by our example and by the priorities that we set. And by the way, our influence, we don't think much about it. It's so gradual and almost undetectable. But here's the saying that I've never forgotten. More is caught than taught. More is caught than taught. Or as Emerson wrote, what you do speaks so loudly I can't hear what you say or what you're saying. Our actions, our example, and the priorities we set shape those we influence. So by our example and priorities, are we leading our, our children and families to be more committed to Jesus and his word or less committed to God because of our pursuit of idolatry? as King Ahab displayed. Well, the th third group of people that I'd ask us to see if we identify with would be the people of Israel, God's chosen people. They became fearful during this time of spiritual decay. In verse 19, Now summon the people, Elijah said, from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. 
But the people said nothing. The people were silent. How long will you waver? This word waver means to hobble. It means to be unsteady. It means to be double-minded. I can imagine the nation of Israel standing in that valley that day. Well, man, if Jezebel and Ahab, if they're killing off the prophets of God, then what the heck will he do to a peon like me if I take a step forward for God, the God of Israel? My life will be over. So the people chose to remain silent in mass out of fear. But, well, Israel didn't want to stick out. They wanted to fade in the background. They wanted to mind their own business and stay safe. But that's not the Christian life, is it? We're called to step out. We're called to be lights on, on the hill, you know, not to be covered by a bushel basket, but to shine over the city. We're, we're called to be salt of this earth. We're called to build the body of Christ and reach people who are lost. Partner with God. In verse 22, Elijah said to them, Hey, I'm the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. It's like the one prophet against 450, actually 950, if you include the other prophets of Asherah. You got one prophet of God against 950 and a silent people. What would you have done had you been in that crowd and you had one crazy prophet saying, hey, if you, don't waver. If you want to serve God of Israel, take a step forward. What would you have done with 450 prophets of Baal looking on? And the court of Ahab looking on. What would I have done? We all struggle with fear at times, especially when we feel like we're in the minority. And we would have felt like we were in the minority there. When we turn on the evening news and hear about what's going on around the world or even in our country, as Christians, we often feel like we're in the minority, which can lead us to fear and silence. And we can forget this one important truth, that God plus one person is always the majority. God is always the majority, even if there's just one person. Psalm 75, we're told that no one from the east or the west or from the desert can exalt themselves because it is God who judges. He brings one down, he exalts another. God is in complete control. He is sovereign in Daniel 2.21, God changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and he raises up others. If he, he does what he wants to do. But we, uh, we cower in fear. We forget that God plus one is a majority. Sort of like when we used to live in Lafayette, Indiana, the kids would walk up the street and on the corner of our street, as we crossed to the elementary school, there was this chain link fence. And there was this dog behind the fence. And he was kind of on a leash too, I think. But at least he was behind a fence. And he was the meanest dog I've ever seen. If you go up to try and, hey, how are you? He'd come, and he would, he would run against the fence and he'd show his teeth. And, you know, our kids were like, we decided we'd walk on the other side of the road most of the time. Because this dog was so mean. 
And I thought of Satan and how Satan is like that. You know, Satan is so cruel and he comes roaring and barking and showing his teeth. But Satan is also behind a chain link fence. He is on a leash. He can only go so far because God is sovereign. He can't touch us as children of God. But during my sabbatical, I was prone to believe that, uh, um, I was prone to believe these lion spirits you know, that would come at me in the middle of the night and um, just fill me with fear. And I was really prone to be overtaken by that. Finally, I remembered through my reading that I am, in fact, a child of God, and God has given me authority over these spirits because of Christ's death and resurrection. And, and, and I can claim my authority in prayer. And so I learned of this prayer by Richard Foster, and I would pray it out loud often, daily. Um, because I prayed it out loud because demons can't hear our thoughts. And so I, I let them know verbally in prayer. And I would pray, by the authority of Almighty God, I protect myself with the blood of Christ. I seal myself with the cross of Christ. All dark and evil spirits must leave now. No evil influence is allowed to come near me, but that which is first filtered through the light of Jesus Christ, in whose name I pray, amen. I'd pray that, and, and what was revelatory for me was that last part where it said no evil influence can touch me or be allowed to influence me except that which first has been filtered through the light of Christ. These demonic spirits had to pass by the throne of God in order to get any permission to influence me in any way. And God said, I'm going to allow them to influence you, John, because you need to learn to take authority over them. Because you're going to co-reign with me one day, and you're in preparation for that. But the people of Israel, they cowered in fear. They didn't know the authority that they had. The last group of people would be the prophets of Baal. And of course, these prophets, they were religious, they were committed, they were respected, but they were deceived. These groups of prophets were celebrated and empowered and influential. They were exalted by the king's court. They were in favor with everybody. They were the top of the world. They were sitting in a good place. And yet, for all their accolades, their success would be short-lived. Like the opposing team in football who racks up a 28-point halftime lead and they run into the locker room with their chests up and their heads held high and we are we are it you know but then after in the second half there's a reversal and the big choke happens and there's a, the greatest comeback you know miraculous comeback by the opposing team and at the end of the game the team is walking to the bus with their head down deflated discouraged and humiliated short-lived Short-lived success. Many of the Hollywood elites, politicians, millionaire athletes, successful business tycoons are on the top of the heap in our culture. They enjoy popularity, position, power, and prosperity, at least for a season. But that season will come to a close. Meryl Steep 
wrote this about Hollywood. She said, it's sort of exhausting the self-congratulatory atmosphere in which the movie community lives. It's unbearable. We're not that important in the world, but we certainly all think we are. I shouldn't talk about it. I mean, I'm really grateful that my work is recognized, but boy, we've gotten a little bloated. It's so grand, and the outfits are so incredible, and the critique of how everybody looks, and the desperation of people to make an impact, it really gets to me. That's Hollywood, an honest look at the inside of Hollywood. Or how about Frank Sinatra's daughter, Tina Sinatra, who recalls her father's increasing drive to succeed and make money even when his health was at risk and he was getting older. My father, she said, refused to stop giving concerts. He said, I've got to earn more money. She goes on, his performances, sad to say, were becoming more and more uneven. I couldn't bear to see my dad struggle. After seeing one too many of these fiascos, I told him, Pop, you got to stop now. You don't have to stay on the road. But with a stricken expression, he said, No, I've got to earn more money. I've got to make sure everyone is taken care of. And then after he died, then his family went to war over the money. (laughs) Jesus said in Matthew For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will save it. What good is it will it be for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Well, these prophets of Baal had forfeited their soul. They were deceived. They seemed to have great power and influence. They were on top of the world, but their success was short-lived. Soon, We'll read in two weeks when I preach again. Um, the curtain will be pulled back. We'll read. And uh, the prophets will be exposed for the fools that they really were. As they were unable to conjure up their God of Baal to come down and start a fire, just a small little measly fire to give evidence that he's alive and well. But they were unable to do that, even though they cried out all day long and cut themselves and danced and screamed. Their God was silenced. And then the prophets of Baal would be judged by God. Well, the curtain will one day be pulled back on all of us as well. And the true condition of our souls will be exposed and revealed in the light of Christ as we face our Creator. Meanwhile... That same spirit behind Baal is the same spirit who's alive and well today. These spirits seem to have power and influence and even control over believers. And we sometimes fear these spirits, as I recently did. But their power is short-lived, and their power over the believer is simply the tongue. It's the lie The evil spirits have the power to deceive us with their lies and occasionally even with their their pseudo-miracles that that they can do. And I've heard that, you know, even different religions can conjure up spirits and, and see these miracles take place. Sort of like during the days of Moses, remember? In Pharaoh's court, when Moses, when God would use Moses to present one of the miracle plagues 
over Egypt, then Pharaoh's magicians would come by. And we read in Exodus 7, Aaron, Moses' brother, threw his staff down in front of Pharaoh and the officials, and it became a snake. That was God's miracle. But then Pharaoh summoned his wise men and sorcerers, and the Egyptian magicians also did the same things by their secret arts. It seemed like they had the same type of power. But these, the spirit was defeated in Elijah's day, in Moses' day, and in Jesus' day on the cross. On that day in Mount Carmel, the day of the showdown between Elijah and these prophets of Baal, the deceiving spirits were not permitted to display any power whatsoever. They couldn't give one peep. Baal could not give one peep outside of God's permission. They were completely bound and gagged by the power and the authority of the sovereign God of Israel. And then ultimately the prophets were judged and put to death. So they had a moment of of power and success, as the world does around us, right? It can discourage us. We can feel like we're in the minority. We can feel like we're getting defeated, but God plus one is a majority. We need not be discouraged, and we need not any longer be deceived by these lying spirits. So who do we identify with in conclusion? We can identify with Obadiah, who reluctantly obeyed and he was faithful, And God came through for him because he was faithful and small. He was given more opportunity. Or we could be like Ahab, King Ahab, who he kind of knew the truth, but he compromised it by marrying Jezebel and by um, allowing idolatry to overcome the nation. Or we could, are we like the people of Israel? With all, the, all of the injustice and idolatry and opposition, they cowered and they were fearful and they just wanted to mind their own business and have their own little private faith. Or we could be like the prophets of Baal and just live in our false security and, and power and, and prosperity. Hey, we are it. But our prosperity will only be short-lived because the curtain will be pulled back one day and we'll be exposed for who we really are as deceived ones, if we don't know Jesus. Well, in two weeks, we'll conclude this series by looking at the showdown at Mount Carmel and how it, um, how it speaks directly into our current spiritual climate, climate that we live. Um, so we'll, we'll conclude this sermon series with that. Let's pray. So Lord Jesus, I pray that during this time of communion that we'll do some serious assessment as we uh, look at the condition of our souls and who we may identify with in this story. Uh, Lord, thank you that this we come to church not only to worship you, but we come to repent and confess so that we can be made right with you again. And thank you, Lord, that you meet us at our table when we're broken, when we're in need, and that you love us unconditionally and re-invite us back into relationship time and time again. Thank you, Lord, that we can celebrate with you intimately at your table. So meet with us, I pray, in Christ's name. Amen.